What amazing news. Um, such amazing divine love. Hey, Globe Minis are going out. Globe Minis, have a great time. Praise God. Um, and we need some good news, right? I don't know if you um, watched Eurovision last night. Anyone watch it? How many, how many people watched Eurovision last night? Yes. We represent quite a lot of nations. Well done if your nation did well. Britain didn't. We came last. We got no points. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine you go all that effort and you, no one. Anyway. But we've got good news. We've got good news to celebrate today. And do you know what's really special about today? It, it is a special day. Um, today is Pentecost Sunday. Which you may not get that excited. You may go, oh, I thought you thought it was something exciting. That is, like, properly exciting. You see, Pentecost Sunday was the day when God poured out his spirit in such power that the church was born. We stand in the line of the Pentecost church, the apostolic church. We believe the apostolic message, the historic message that has been preached since Peter stood up filled with the Spirit and proclaimed it on the day of Pentecost. That same Spirit lives in us and he enables us today to believe that same message. That's good news. And so we come this afternoon confident that God, by his Spirit, the Spirit of Pentecost, would enable us to understand this afternoon. And if you find yourself in church this afternoon not really sure what Pentecost thing is, and you're not quite sure what this spirit talk is about, well, let me encourage you to listen hard this afternoon and to see what you make of what the Bible has to say. Because actually what we read here is historical and life-changing. It's rooted in history, and yet it is so relevant and up-to-date to our world today. That's our conviction. So give me half an hour and we'll see how we get on. And I'll do my best to help us to understand. And you asked that the Spirit would help you to listen. So let me bow, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we ask please now that that's, oh wow, that same Spirit of Pentecost, the same Spirit who filled Peter and enabled him to preach your gospel with such truth, that that same spirit would now fill us, would enable us to see Jesus as he truly is and would shake us with that same power and would send us out to live and to serve him. Lord, please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's grab our Bibles, the Bibles that the same spirit of Pentecost inspired in the first place. And let's read together. We're going to read the last little bit of John chapter 11. So John 11, verse 45. John 11, verse 45. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what's just literally just happened before um, our reading today. And then it says this. Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. 
Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Well, this is God's spirit-inspired word, and Let's pray that he'd be helping us this afternoon. Well, we're going to think now. I, I want to imagine you've watched a film, and uh, the main action of the film is done. The city has been saved. The hero's won. The enemy's been destroyed. Everyone's happy. And then you get that last five minutes that most films have where you sort of see the reactions, and the loose ends are tied up, and everything kind of rounds off nicely, and it gives you that warm sense of well-being and happiness. It might be tempting to kind of approach a section of John's gospel like we've just read in that sort of way. You know, the main action has kind of happened. The main action was last week when Jesus stood at the grave of a dead man and said, Lazarus, come out. And out he comes and Jesus performs this incredible sign. And what we've got now is just some kind of some loose ends, just to tie up some loose ends. Now, that would be to misunderstand what's going on. Actually, what we have in this little chunk of John 11 are not loose ends, but I'm going to show you three threads which John weaves together in a tapestry to enable us to understand something of what we've just seen in rising Jesus from the dead. And so we're going to unpick this tapestry and we're going to take those three threads and we're going to examine them one at a time and see what is going on here. What is it that John, as he writes his gospel, or what is it that the Spirit, as he inspires this gospel, what is it that God wants us to understand? And here are the three threads and then we'll just work through them. The first thread we're going to look at is simple belief. Simple belief. The second thread then we're going to pull on is the thread of urgent resistance. And then the third thread will be divine intention. That's where we're going. And those three threads, they sort of weave in and out of one another. And we need to look carefully at what John is building. So let's take the first one. Simple belief. So if you look down at um, verse 45, if you've got it in front of you, It's a pretty simple statement. Therefore, that is, on the basis of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. 
They saw the sign and they believed. It's simple. They'd come to comfort Mary in the loss of her brother. They'd come ready for a funeral and instead they saw the most extraordinary act of power that they'd ever witnessed. And you may say, well, that's great. That's a nice first simple first point. This is going to be a very quick sermon. Not so fast. (laughs) Because what does it mean? What does it really mean to believe in Jesus? See, we, we... it may be something you've been around church, you say, well, I know, I sort of know what it means to believe in Jesus. We talk of Christians as believers, but what does that really mean? Well, I want to take a few minutes just to articulate it carefully. Let's think about it. And if you're here, like I say, and you're very new to this stuff, I hope this will really help you to understand what we mean when we talk about believing in Jesus. Okay, firstly then, let's locate belief in the right place. I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if I asked you instinctively to the part of your body that was required for believing, I wonder where you would point. I think instinctively and naturally, we are trained to go like this. You believe with your mind. Belief is a rational response. Because we live in a culture where the mind is the control center of you. I mentioned the film um, Inside Out a few weeks ago, the the Disney film. When, When they want to locate the control center of a little girl called Riley, they place it in her mind, between her two ears. Because that's where we're controlled. Now, why do, we, why do we think the mind is the control center? The reason we think the mind is the control center is because we live in a culture that is highly materialistic, which means that primarily you are your body. And therefore, it makes sense because scientifically, biologically, it is your, bo- your mind that controls your body. Therefore, your mind is your control center. But that comes as a function of us reducing human beings primarily to biological machines rather than spiritual beings. And when you look into the pages of the Bible, you discover something very interesting. You discover that the Bible has a very different perspective on who you are and what makes you you, and particularly where the control center lies. The Bible says that your control center is not your mind, but your heart. So when we hear the word believe, that is a heart Thing. In, in um, the book of Romans, you, you don't need to turn to it, um, but I'll, I'll do that for you. I'll turn to it, save you the, the trouble. Um, listen to how Paul puts it in the book of Romans. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It is with your heart that you believe. So when we talk about believing in Jesus, we are talking about a heart response to Jesus. At which point we go, oh, heart. Okay, well, we know what the heart is. The heart's the gushy, emotional bit of me. I've got the rational, intelligent bit in the brain, and I've got my gooey bit inside. I'm sorry. No, that's wrong too. (laughs) Again, that's a very 21st century view of what the heart is about. The Bible has a much bigger view of what the heart is, and this is where it's going to slightly mess with your brain, and you're going to think I'm contradicting myself, but you'll see why this matters in a minute. When the Bible talks of your heart, it has a big thing in mind. The heart is the control center. And when you read um, in, in the Bible, you discover that the heart is made up of the mind, the affections, and the will. That's a helpful way to kind of remember it. Hang on, John, I thought you said it wasn't the mind. I thought you said it was the heart. Yes, now I'm telling you that the biblical understanding of heart has a component that is the mind, but not, that is not the sum of it. <laughs> this simple belief has got slightly more complicated uh, than it was a minute ago, right? Stick with it, and hopefully you'll see where we're going. You see, if you now apply the idea of belief to the mind, the affections, and the will. That is the heart. That is what makes up you. The things you think, the things you love, and the things you choose. If you apply belief to that heart, you begin to get a big picture of what it means to believe in Jesus. So it does involve the mind. There is a component of belief that involves mental assent to truth. You become convinced intellectually that something is true. You see the evidence and you say, I think that's true. That is to believe. Now, I'm going to use an illustration which is um, obvious and predictable and I've used before, but I can't think of a better one and it's the simplest way to do this. You see an aeroplane and you watch it fly in the sky, you see it land, and you say, I believe that can fly. That is believing with your mind. And that is a part of what it means to believe in Jesus. But if that's what all you think believing in Jesus is, then you've stopped too far short, because you've got to push on, you see, because you can believe something is true, but you notice that it doesn't say that they believe Jesus. It says they believe in Jesus. Many believed in him. The old translations um, says they believed on him. What does it mean to believe on Jesus? Well, that's something bigger than just a mental ascent. And this is what I want to move us now to think about our affections. You believe in Jesus with your affections. You don't simply believe that he is true. You come to see that he is desirable. That there is something about him that you want. 
Something about him that you are drawn to. You say, there's something about this man. I believe, I believe it's true. and I believe that it's good. As you listen to him speak, as you look at his life, you come to a point of saying, Jesus, I want you. I love you. I desire you. So if you go back to the airplane illustration, it wouldn't just be, I believe this thing can fly. It goes, and I want to fly. You see the difference? You see, you could see an airplane, but go, well, who cares? There's a plane, I believe it flies. Big deal, and I go with my life. But when you see the airplane, you think, and I want to fly. I want to, boy, do I want to escape England and go somewhere else. I want it. And that leads then on to the third element of belief, which is the will. That is, I choose. I make a decision. I put my confidence into Jesus. And so I begin to see that Jesus is not just true. He is not just good. He is also vital. I need him. I need him to be the one who, as it says earlier in John's gospel, saves me. I need him to be the one who can give life. I need him to be the one who can forgive sin. I need him to be the one who can set me free. Jesus, I need you. I can't do it myself. You abandon confidence in yourself and you place all of your trust in Jesus. So if you go back to the illustration of the airplane again. I guess it would be like if you were in huge danger and the whole of the island that you were on was on fire and there was massive danger. Now suddenly it's not just you say, do I intellectually believe this thing can fly? It's not even do I want it to fly, it's I need it to fly. I get onto the plane because I need it. And in a very simple way, that is what it means not a very simple way. That is what it means to be a Christian. It means to say, Jesus, I believe you are true. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I need you. And we move towards him and we trust him. We believe on him. We say, without you, Jesus, I'm lost. I need you. And you may say to me, well, what, what, what happens when I'm doubting? What happens when I don't mentally believe that Jesus is the truth? Well, can I, give you, can I tell you honestly? Most times I fly, I'm not 100% sure the plane's going to work. But I still got on the plane. Because it's not about you having your perfect belief. It's not about you having perfect desire. It's not about you having a perfect will that chooses him. Sometimes those things are shaky, but you still get on the plane. Simple belief. It is a simple thing. It's as simple as getting on the plane. But don't fall into the trap 
of thinking that to believe in Jesus is some intellectual exercise. It's not. It's a much bigger thing than that. And when you see him as he truly is, he compels your affections to want him. And then he moves your will to choose him. But let's, we, we, need to, we need to move on because in one sense we might say, well, why doesn't everyone just believe in Jesus? Why would anyone reject him? Or in fact, come to that, why do I find often my heart resists him? If Jesus is so great and he's done this great stuff, why do I find my heart resists him? Well, let's pick the second thread of our tapestry. To believe in Jesus is not a neutral reality. In fact, what we find is urgent resistance when we begin to move towards Jesus, when there is belief beginning to happen, we find that there is a strong resistance. That's what we see happening next. So let's um, pick up the story in verse 46. We're going to speed up because we've only done one verse. Um, Some people went to tell the religious leaders. They go and tell them what happened. And then look at verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting. What a human thing to do. Let's have a meeting. I bet you've been, many of you have been called to a meeting this week. And it's filled your heart with joy. Human beings love meetings, don't they? We love meetings to be able to sort things out. We say we hate them, but we do them all the time. So someone somewhere loves them. Now remember that they've just received news that Jesus has raised a man from the dead, right? You've got to get into this. They've just, it's, they haven't just received the monthly kind of last quarter's financial details. They've received news that Jesus raised a man from the dead. And their response is, let's have a meeting. That's what we need. They gather together. They take counsel with one another. And they've got an agenda It's a pretty straightforward agenda. Unlike many meetings, which seem to have no agenda, this one has an agenda. Now, the group that meets is called the Sanhedrin. They are the religious leaders. This is not a fringe group, special interest meeting. This is high level. These are the religious leaders and in many ways the political leaders within Israel. This would be like Boris Johnson calling a cobra meeting. We have a serious incident happening and we need to get the most important influential people in the room and decide what we're going to do to handle this disaster that's happened. Their instinct is to resist what Jesus is saying and doing. That is their end game. That's what they're trying to achieve. So look what they say in verse 47. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. They've got this real problem. Jesus keeps doing these signs. Now notice, they don't deny the signs. It's not like they're mentally not believing, they believe that Jesus did it. They believe he raised Lazarus from the dead. But their issue is how do we handle this? Rather than believe, like we saw before, their affections and their will drive them in a different direction they want to resist. If this was a referendum, these are the guys running the no campaign. 
Vote no to Jesus. Which is tough when the yes campaign's got a bloke raising people from the dead. Right, that's, that makes your job hard as the no campaign. What have you got? Well, we don't like him. <laughs> yeah, but he's raising people from the dead. Oh. So why are they so obsessed? Well, here's the big fear. The crowds are going to turn to this carpenter from Nazareth. That is going to destabilize the whole region and their power and their positions are under threat. That's the issue. So they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. This guy is running a good campaign. He's thrashing us. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see, they say everything's going to be messed up. This bloke is threatening everything. We've got this kind of peace with the Romans. They're the great threat, these nasty Romans, who are going to come and destroy everything if we let this get out of hand. All of this is human beings trying to hold on to power and status, trying to hold on to their comfortable lives, trying to keep what they want. They don't want to be threatened, and they don't want to be challenged, and they don't want to change. They don't want to be exposed. And so they would rather sideline this bloke. They're actually doing, um, it's interesting, if you, um, back in Psalm 2, you discover um, that they're not the first people to have a meeting. In fact, listen, meetings have been happening right from the beginning. It says this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. They are resisting urgently resisting, just like humanity has always done. Let's gather together and find a way to resist this thing. We don't want it. No, we want to be in charge. We want to be, have the status and the power. And so they have this meeting. The problem is they're not sure what to do. They're not sure how to go about it. And it's not until Caiaphas steps in with, very crystal clear. This is the moment in the meeting when everyone's been sitting around going, oh, we don't know what to do. And then at last, someone speaks with a bit of decisiveness. Caiaphas stands up and he's pretty decisive. He's the high priest. He says, you know nothing at all. <laughs> it's not going to win many friends in the meeting. But his point is that, come on, it's obvious what we have to do. It's obvious. If we're going to resist this man, there's a clear line of action. You do not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation will perish. It's obvious. This bloke needs to die. We've just got to get rid of him. Because if we can get rid of him, we can go back to being in control, of running things our way, of being in power and keeping our status. Self-protection, self-preservation, let's get rid of him. Get rid of him and we save ourselves. That's how the resistance works. Do you know, sometimes we speak of cancel culture like it's a new phenomenon. <laughs> There's nothing new. In this moment, this is the ultimate act of cancel culture, right? 
We don't want you. We don't want to hear your voice, so we will cancel you. In fact, our plan is to cancel you so utterly and completely that we will kill you. That's the resistance. But you know, like Psalm 2 shows us, they're only doing what humanity has always done with God right from the beginning. It has always been humans' natural desire to cancel God, to silence him. We have our meetings, we gather together, we take our stand, and we try to shake him off and write him out of history. And this is just the latest, but really the most offensive example. That is why simple belief is not as simple as it first sounds. In every human heart, as we begin to engage with the claims of Jesus, you are not engaging with a neutral fact. Does this plane fly? Oh, interesting, I don't know. You are engaging with a reality that you will find your heart naturally will resist. You cannot dispassionately explore and understand. You have an inbuilt resistance to it. It's like those bungee runs, which used to be popular. I don't know if they're still around. You know, where you're tied to a bungee rope and you're running, 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 and it's, you feel free and you feel wonderful and you're bouncing on the bouncy thing and you're bouncing towards your freedom and then you get pulled back by the bungee. That is what most people's experience of coming to believe in Jesus feels like. (laughs) Wow, Jesus, you're amazing. You raised someone from the dead. And and you move towards him, and then suddenly you find yourself being pulled back. (laughs) Something within you resists, resists, even quite powerfully. Surely you've all experienced that, right? (laughs) Surely that's not just me. Because it isn't just the Sanhedrin. It's all of us. Because if I really believe in Jesus, there comes a moment at which I say, well, hang on a second, that's going to threaten me. That's going to threaten my life. That's going to threaten my independence and my autonomy. I might have to change the way I'm living. I might have to change what I'm doing. And suddenly we find a resistance coming. And then we find ourselves wanting to cancel him. Write him out. Shut him down. No, Jesus, I don't think I want to listen to you anymore. I've seen it happen in others. I've seen it happen, people so excited about Jesus, and then suddenly they just cancel him. I've seen it happen in me. I wonder if you can relate to that. That's what's going on. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you see it in yourself. Don't be surprised if you see it in the world. There is an urgent resistance. But there is one final thing, one final thread that we need to pull on. Because if that's all we saw, we'd miss something really important. Because there's something even bigger going on. And this is a thread that will take us deeper into reality than you've ever seen. And that is the divine intention. Yes, there's simple belief. Now there's urgent resistance. And then, weaving its way through all of it, is divine intention. Isn't verse 51 so intriguing? Verse 51 Caiaphas, he did not say this on his own. He did not say this on his own. 
What a puzzling verse. Caiaphas wasn't speaking his own words. Well, what on earth was going on then? Well, we're told, verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied. In this moment, as Caiaphas speaks these words of urgent resistance, we need to kill him. We need to cancel him and shut him up. In that moment, as he utters those words of arrogant defiance, he's prophesying. That is, he is speaking God's truth. That's what prophecy means. And these two things, these two Threads of the tapestry weave together as Caiaphas says his rebellious, and make no mistake, he is being rebellious. As he says his thing, God is speaking through Caiaphas to speak a deeper, more profound, and more beautiful truth. Caiaphas doesn't realize it, but he's right. Jesus will die for the Jewish nation. And not just for the Jewish nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. The Sanhedrin intend that the death of Jesus will silence him and save the nation. God intends that the very same death of Jesus will be the means by which God will save the nation, and not just the nation, but a far greater nation than they'd ever dreamed. This is what makes this so cool. This is how God operates. Even as human beings take their stand and have their meetings and plot and plan and gather against God, God is working out his purpose. Here is God's sovereign control. But what does it mean that Jesus will die for the scattered children of God? Well, it's the language of sacrifice. One man dies for, on behalf of, in place of, the children of God. Right from the start of John, we've been told that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is the one who dies in the place of another, a substitute. The lamb dies so that someone else goes free. Do you know, here's the great tragedy of this. The religious leaders of the day, they see that they are threatened by Rome. They think that the Romans are the great threat, but they don't see the true threat that the nation is facing. There's a far greater threat. The Roman Empire might look powerful and strong, but there's a far greater danger. And that greater danger that humanity faces is God. You think the Romans are strong? What if God is against you? Remember, the one that we've resisted and tried to cancel, he is our great danger. Look, imagine seeing, a, um, imagine seeing a two-year-old sitting in the middle lane of the M25 on a day when there's not a traffic jam, when the cars are actually moving. <laughs> this illustration needs the cars to be moving. 
Imagine a two-year-old sitting in the middle lane of the M25. And uh, she's sitting there, and she's happily playing with a teddy bear and having a happy little time. And you see her, and you say, Hey, 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 hey! Watch out! Those teddy bears, the eyes of those teddy bears sometimes fall out and can become a choking hazard. You're in great danger. You would rightly, I mean, that would be crazy, right? Yes, there may be a little choking danger hazard from the teddy bear eyes, but there is a far greater danger. The 10-ton trucks that are hurtling by at 70 miles an hour, they are the real danger. Here is the problem, right? As humanity, as the Sanhedrin here, they see the Romans as their danger. They are just teddy bear spare parts. Compared to the fact that there's a God in heaven who is rightly angry that they have cancelled him. And his judgment is like a 10-ton truck hurtling towards the nation. And not just them, all of us who've cancelled God, all of us who've resisted him, all of us who've tried to write him out of our lives. God is angry and he is the greatest danger that we face. There may be all sorts of things that you think threaten you. There may be sickness or insecurity in terms of job. There may be all sorts of things that you think threaten you. But none of them compare to the reality that God, the judge, is angry. And that's why Jesus had to die. Because when Jesus died for the nation, Jesus stood in front of the 10-ton truck of God's judgment. And he spread out his arms and the judgment of God fell on him. It destroyed him. He died. It should have hit you, but he took it for you. That's what we mean when we say that he would die for the scattered children of God. That's what we mean. He died in your place, taking what you deserve so that you might be gathered as one of God's precious children. That's it. That's what it means. And then the, the last little bit, we haven't got time to do that. And we, I just want to end, I, I just want to land that there and say, well, what do you make of this? Do you believe it? I mean, do you believe it intellect? Do you believe it's true? Do you desire it? Does it move you that there is someone who would love you enough to die for you? Will you trust him? Will you say, Jesus, would you save me? And to believe in him, to get in the plane, is, is like to come and stand behind him and say, I'm going to stand behind you, Jesus. I'm going to be safe here. And even as you believe it, you'll find a resistance in your heart saying, no, 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 I, I can't because of this. And, I, and, and we're finding resistance. That's going to be going on. That's what John is showing us. That's why this is no little 
postscript to the raising of Lazarus from the dead, this is what the raising of Lazarus from the dead is all supposed to drive us to. You've got to believe him. Believe him with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Believe. Why don't we bow our heads and pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you this afternoon that when Caiaphas stood up and spoke those words of bitter hatred and resistance, it was your plan to save us. (laughs) That to humanity who would so reject you and resist you, you sent your son to die. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Lord, thank you that whoever believes, whoever believes, finds safety in Jesus. So Lord, this afternoon, pray that each one of us in this room would come to believe in Jesus, to see how much we need him, And to find in him safety, forgiveness, joy, freedom, life forever. And we ask it in his name. Amen.